This message is brought to you by Mill City Church in Lowell, Massachusetts. For more information, please visit millcitychurch.net. This morning, we're going to continue our Hard Questions teaching series. And so we've been looking at some tough questions the last few weeks, and we're going to tackle another one today. Um, And the question today is, why do we suffer? Why do we suffer? Uh, Many times you can hear from friends or family members or the media or opponents of Christianity who will postulate something along the lines of God cannot be a good God and also allow all of the heinous suffering that we see on planet earth. And this is what's called the evidential argument because you're looking at the evidence and you're saying because this is reality and this is reality, then something else can't be reality. And what I want to do is I want to dive into the scriptures today and show you how these two can work in concert together. And we need a more biblical framework and a more eternal mindset to think about it. Um, You can look in your notes this morning, and I have a couple of contrasts here to get us started in this conversation this morning. And I know that this is a it's a hard topic to address. It's hard because all of us in this room have experienced suffering in some way. Now, some more than others, uh, maybe some less than others, but we've all experienced suffering. We've all seen the effects of suffering on planet Earth in some shape, form, or fashion, and so it's hard. It's fitting that this would be in the hard questions category and the hard questions study series. But I want to I think about a couple of contrasts this morning. The first one is, is this, is, is the contrast between man and God. Humans are extremely man-centered, while God is extremely God-centered. Now, why would we start here? The reason we would start here with these contrasts is because when we see something like we've seen this week even, when we look at a hurricane hitting the poor country of Haiti just a few years after a devastating earthquake hits that country, or when we look at the floods in South Louisiana, or we look at the suffering at the hands of perpetrators uh, here on planet Earth, we're looking at these things and, and we're saying, why? And that's not a bad question to ask. Our challenge, though, as humanity is we normally tend to only see what's happening through the lenses of humanity. We only see it from a human perspective. And so we see the here and the now. We only see what the effects are to human beings. Whereas God is in, it has much more of a helicopter view, and He is seeing all of events through the lenses, lenses of Himself, and his purposes. I'm going to unpack this more in a moment, but to, for a foundation, let's first see that humans are generally, extremely man-centered, whereas God is very God-centered. A second contrast that I want you to see is that humans are extremely temporally focused, whereas God is extremely eternally focused. And what I mean here is that we as humans, we view what happens in our lives or in our communities or in the world only through the lens of today, only through the lens of my current existence, of life here on earth, whereas God is much more eternally focused from both eternity past, history, present, future, and eternity future. 
God has a much bigger view of what's going on than you or I have uh, how we can see things. This is important for us to understand because you and I are constantly trying to figure all of this out. And when you start thinking about the evidential argument saying that God cannot be good and also allow suffering, we are only viewing it through the lenses of ourselves and our experiences and our human mindsets. And the struggle here is neither you nor I or even the PhDs in our colleges and universities cannot give all the explanations for the why, cannot give all the explanations for what's next. And we have to recognize and acknowledge our limitedness in exchange and in contrast to God's uh, limitless. Now, I want to go just a step further before we dive into the scriptures this morning. The evidential argument says that God cannot be good and also allow suffering on planet Earth. Well, let's appeal to a, a simple, logical example here on earth of why pain, how pain, how suffering can actually be a good thing, even humanly speaking, and then draw that link, at least in a little bit, to our God. There is a rare but known disease among children called SIPA, congenital insensitivity to pain with anhydrosis. People with this disease can feel no pain. They cannot sweat, nor can they shed any tears. There are only about 100 plus known cases worldwide. Children with this disease must be watched over by their parents 24-7. Guys, you just think that your mom and dad are helicopter parents. No, like literally, they have to watch you 24-7. Why? Because they feel no pain. And since they can feel no pain, they can bite their fingers until they bleed. They can touch hot stoves without feeling any pain. They can play in an irresponsibly rough manner because they feel no pain at all. Parents with a child having SIPA have one prayer. God, I pray that my child could experience and know what pain is for their own good. Now... If a good, loving parent can see at least one benefit for earthly, physical pain in their child, then isn't it logical that a God who transcends us all can also see the benefit of pain and suffering for his children? Now, I don't pretend for a moment that that's easy. I don't pretend for a moment that that just means that we should just go into it full throttle like a 300-pound linebacker this afternoon in the NFL. But we got to at least admit that God transcends us all. And if he's a good parent, he must have good reasons for this. Now, what I want to do this morning is I'm going to be all over the Scriptures as we have been the last few weeks and I want to show you at least eight biblical realities regarding suffering on planet Earth. Now, I have to admit, now I'm going to go ahead and tell you my biases. I'm an evangelical Christian pastor who believes the Bible is the authoritative word of God. And the Bible informs my worldview. The Bible informs our worldview as Christians. 
And so primarily, I'm going to be speaking to a Christian audience from a Christian perspective, from our Christian, from our Christian scriptures, which I believe is the ultimate standard and rule for all of us here on planet Earth. But understand the bias, and I get that. But if you're here today and you're a skeptic, I want to draw you in and let you see the heart of the Father and the heart of the Scriptures. And I pray that all of us, whether we're believers or whether we're not, that we would humble ourselves, humble ourselves before our great, loving, and good Father and understand His purposes a little bit more on planet Earth, even if we cannot understand all the intricacies and the why. So you ready? All right, eight biblical realities regarding suffering. Here's number one. We must refrain from simply overlooking the reality of suffering. We must refrain from simply overlooking the reality of suffering. In Matthew 6, verse 34, Jesus Christ himself in the Sermon on the Mount said this, Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Even from the mouth of Jesus, Jesus did not ride away pain. He did not discard it. He didn't sweep it under the rug. He did not say that if you simply follow Jesus, you'll have your best life now and just enjoy nothing but peace and tranquility on earth. That was never the message of Jesus. And the Sermon on the Mount, which is probably Jesus' most famous sermon, most famous length of scriptures coming from his mouth, Jesus says sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Our Savior himself acknowledged suffering. He acknowledged the pain. He acknowledged the trouble. And so for Christians who live in some world that they've created, where we have said that if you're really a Christian, you won't experience hardship. Or if you just come to Jesus, your kids won't get sick and the house will always be in perfect order and nothing bad's ever going to happen to you because God would never let anything happen to his children. That is a Christianity that simply doesn't exist in the scriptures. And there are pastors and denominations and sects of Christianity who, who postulate these things and, and say these things on a regular occurrence. And they're even shipping it out across the globe where people on other continents are hearing the same thing. And they're putting their hopes and their faith in a reality that simply does not exist. We must refrain from simply overlooking the reality of suffering because even Jesus says it's a reality and it's here on planet Earth. And as long as planet Earth is what planet Earth is, it's here to stay. Number two. We must acknowledge that suffering is related to sin, but people don't always suffer in direct proportion to their sin. Suffering is related to sin, but people don't always suffer in direct proportion to their sin. So here's what I mean by being related to sin. When you look at the atrocities on planet Earth that happen, an overwhelming majority of what we see on planet Earth is at the hands of fellow man. Because here's the deal. There are a little over 7 billion people on planet Earth. And every one of those people is a sinner. 
at the very depths of our hearts, we are sinners. And since we are sinners, the Bible would call us evil and wicked. Now, I talked about this last week, but none of us is as bad as we could be. But each and every one of us is sinful. We're selfish. We're prideful and arrogant. And the sin nature manifests itself differently in different people. And in some, it manifests itself in such a way that they actually cause harm to other people. And before we get on our our soapboxes of judgment and thinking that we're somehow better, think about that when you go home today and think about the way you treat your husband or your wife or the way you treat your kids or the way you treat your mom and dad or the way you would treat your roommate because we can jump all day long on the murderers and the pedophiles and talk about the evils that they do to other people. But see, we hurt each other on a daily basis too, don't we? We just don't do it to the extremes that others do it. That doesn't make us better than them. It just means that the sin nature has manifested itself differently in us than them. But we're still sinners. Now, so suffering and pain is related to sin because people hurt people. But we don't always suffer in direct proportion to our sin. Look at John 9. In John 9, Jesus heals a man born blind. And in verse 1, John recounts this. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. You see, our temptation is when something bad happens, or when suffering happens in a country or to us individually, We are constantly trying to think, what did I do to deserve this? I must be being punished for something. There's a whole sect of Christians out there that will say things like this. Oh, well, you're going through this because you did X, Y, and Z, and this is retribution from God because of that. Now, I'm not saying that God would never do that because we surely see instances in the Scriptures where that happens, and absolutely sin has its consequences, There are ramifications of many of the decisions that we make. Sometimes it's ramifications of the sins that other people did and made in their lives, and it just simply affected us. And the disciples were very tempted here. Jesus, this guy's blind. Did he sin, or was it his parents who sinned? And Jesus says, it's not because anybody sinned that this guy was born blind. He was born blind for my purposes. See, there's sometimes that there's just things that happen in the sovereignty of God that He is wiring and designing for both our good and His glory, which we're going to look at in just a moment. So we must acknowledge that suffering is related to sin, but people don't always suffer in direct proportion to their sin. Next, we must also come to grips with the fact that we don't always have an answer as to the why of each act of suffering. You see, I always get nervous. I always get nervous when I get hear groups of, especially groups of Christians circling around talking about the latest uh, act that's happened or the, the big event that's happened, the suffering or the pain that's been caused or someone's going through something, you know, and all of a sudden everyone is like a, a certified psychiatrist, right? You know, and our friends on Facebook just have all the answers to every single thing. They can just explain every reason why you're going through what you're going going through. 
guys, I'm a, I'm a pastor, and uh, there were courses that I had to take in seminary called pastoral counseling and pastoral care. And over the last few months, I have counseled people in response to a death in their family. I have counseled people who are going through serious marriage problems. I, I have counseled people who are going through serious sin. And, and I'm just going to tell you as a body, I want you to think about this. Even as a pastor, when I have people sitting across my desk or I'm in the living room of their homes, I am very, very careful of postulating the why. And I'm not better than anybody in here. You guys know my heart. You've been around me. But what I want to say is, if even those of us who are in pastoral care and are shepherds in the church, if, if we're trying to guard ourselves from always explaining the why, I think it's probably a good idea for us as a body to be careful to always trying to explain the why. We got to be careful tripping over our words, trying to give people explanations. Instead, we need to point people towards the hope of the gospel and, and the hope of the gospel in the midst of sin. You know what my answer usually has something to do with? It usually has something to do with, you know what? We live in a sinful world and this world is broken. And in this world broken by sin, we're going to get hurt and we're going to disappoint people and people are going to disappoint us and there are going to be things on earth we just can't explain, we don't understand, but here's what we do know. We know the hope of the gospel and we know that this world is not ultimately our home and so we have to hope in God. We're going to get there in just a moment, okay? So let me just pause there. But we have to be careful always trying to postulate and give resolution as to the why. But we also must learn to ask the right question. When we think about the world in general, you see, we, we ask, why, God? Why? Why Haiti? Why the tsunami in Indonesia in 2004? Um, uh, why hurricanes? Why tornadoes? Why earthquakes? Why murder? Why all of these things? And, and we're trying to say that God is not good because all of these things happen. But the better question that we should be asking ourselves, are you ready for this? The better question that we should be asking is, God, why is there not more? Why is there not more suffering on planet Earth? With seven and a half billion people on planet Earth and, and sinful people who are selfish and prideful and, and totally uh, focused on the self only most of the time, why are we not seeing more atrocities? See, we're quick to blame God for everything that we see wrong in society, but we're quick to ignore God and give Him any credit for all the good. That goes on. We're very quick to complain about all the things we don't like about our lives. But when God redeems us or delivers us from something, we're very slow to give him credit and praise and glory. And you see, that's mankind. That's humanity. You see, humanity is always right in his or her own eyes. And there's always someone else to blame, but we are never responsible for anything you got to understand, ask the right question. Why is there not more suffering? R.C. Sproul goes on to say it like this. We are puzzled and bewildered whenever we see suffering in this world because we become accustomed to the mercy and long-suffering of God. Amazing grace is no longer amazing to us. The real question is, 
why has God, why has God not destroyed us all since we got out of our beds this morning? Why does he tolerate us as we continue our work of sin and destruction upon his planet? You see, humanity loves to talk about free will. Well, free will means that we can do whatever we want, right? That we're masters of our own destiny and we're masters of our own domain. We're masters of our own choices and we want free will. And we want to be able as humans to do whatever we want. But we don't want the responsibility that comes with that. And so when anything bad happens, well, it's not our fault. It's not humanity's fault. It's God's fault. Because he hasn't done more to stop all of it. We must come to grips with the fact that we don't always have an answer as to the why of each act of suffering. Number four. Number four, switch gears here a little bit. Understand that God is painting on a much larger canvas than you or I can comprehend. Understand that God is painting on a much larger canvas than you or I can comprehend. One of my favorite examples of this is in John chapter 11. Now, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you have probably heard the Old Testament verse that says something along these lines. That God's ways are higher than our ways. Now, that's biblical. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We just simply cannot comprehend them or understand all of them. But I love John 11 because in John 11, we see a real-life instance of where this played out. Now, in John chapter 11 is where Lazarus dies. Lazarus was a very close, dear friend of Jesus. Mary, Martha, and their brother Lazarus were like like family with Jesus. These were some of his favorite people in his life, very close to him. Now, Lazarus dies, now, but he gets sick. Now, what, I want you to look first with me at verse 14 of chapter 11. <clears throat> then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Here's what happened. The disciples hear that Lazarus is sick. And you know what Jesus did? So the disciples tell Jesus that Lazarus is sick, as if he didn't already know. And, and Jesus purposely stays where he is. Jesus is a long way away from where Lazarus is. And Jesus purposely stays and ignores the disciples' call. of Because the disciples are inferring, hey, we, we should get back to Bethany. Because you could just work your, you know, and you could just make him all better, right? But Jesus purposely doesn't go. As a matter of fact, Jesus purposely waits a couple of days. And in verse 14, Jesus says it plainly, look, Lazarus isn't sick anymore. He's actually dead. And I'm actually glad that we didn't go back. We didn't go back actually for your benefit so that you may believe that I am who I say that I am. And then he says, now let us go to him. And then you look at verse 38, and here's what happens. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? 
So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound and with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. So many things we could do here. I have a whole sermon on this, on this chapter. But here's the picture. God is painting on a much bigger canvas than you or I can see. All the disciples can see, dude is sick, you should go heal him. Jesus gets to the scene and Martha rebukes him saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus in both instances is saying, there is something so much bigger going on here. All you're seeing is your loved one and your friend who is sick. I've got bigger purposes. I wanna show you who I am. And in order to show you who I am, I have to bring you through these moments of discomfort and unease and disappointment and even regret. And that's what God is doing in your life and in mine. Brother and sister, you can't always see what God is painting. I, this summer, I was at the, at the uh, National Gallery in Washington, D.C. I'm not a huge art buff, but I was there with Patrick, and he loves fine art. And so, you know, when you do stuff with your friends, it's kind of you do something that he likes, you, he does something you like, and sometimes you do stuff that both of you like. And so we were at the National Gallery. Now, I'm not, I'm not refined, so I don't know the difference really between Impressionism and and. and canvas and non-canvas and oils. See, it's just not my language. I'm proving it to you. I'm ignorant when it comes to art, but here's what I know. He showed me this beautiful Van Gogh, and I looked at it, and I know beauty when I see it, and I said, you're right. That's beautiful. Now, you can do a trick the next time you see a nice, fine piece of art. If you will go up to that painting, and you just look at it right here, do you know what that painting is going to look like it's going to look like a big gob of goo. Now, that's not real sophisticated language, but it's what it's going to look like. It's just going to look gross. It's going to look brown or yellow, whatever the colors are. There's not going to be much meaning to it. But what's going to happen is the further you go away from that canvas, the more you're going to see the beauty and the landscape of what that artist is painting or has painted. Guys, this is a little glimpse of what life is like for you and me. On any given day, any given moment, any act of suffering that we see on planet Earth, it is like we're standing in the gallery looking at life right up here because all we're seeing is the here and now. But the luxury that God has is He is in the helicopter. And he sees the whole vast thing from creation to fall to redemption from the beginning of time to where we are today and thousands of years from now. And he sees what he's painting. Right now, if we were an impressionist piece of art, see, I do know what it is. We're just one of the dots. This moment in time right now, all of our lives combined is just one of the dots. And that dot is a part of the huge canvas and masterpiece that God is painting throughout redemptive history. We need perspective. God has it. You and I don't. Number five. Here's what we know. And here's where we really started getting into some big promises from Scripture for us who follow Jesus. God promises to work our circumstances for our good and His glory. 
God promises to work our circumstances for our good and His glory. Here's what we must hear this morning from the Scriptures. Your circumstances are not going to be wasted. The trials, the tribulation, the suffering, the pain that you experience on planet earth is not there to simply be wasted. It's there to be used. It's there to refine you. It's there ultimately for your good. I don't understand all of that. I can't give you all the reasons why of that, but it's what the scriptures teach us. This is where perspective comes in. It's why we have to saturate our minds with what God says versus what we think or perceive in any specific moment. Here's what the scriptures tell us. In Romans 8, 28, we know, not we think, not we hope, but we know that all things, how many, just this, just no, all things work together for the good of those who love God. Those who are called according to his purposes. Folks, that's a promise. That is so much more sure than our hypothesis that we purport and we just conjecture about our circumstances. The scriptures say we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God. Jerry Bridges um, who is one of my favorite authors. Um, he could write the phone book and I would read it and I'd probably get a lot of good from it. Um, Jerry Bridges wrote in his little book, Is God Really in Control? Uh, we must realize that God is at work in a proactive and not reactive fashion. That is, God does not just respond to an adversity in our lives to make the best of a bad situation. He knows before he initiates or permits the adversity exactly how he will use it for our good. You see, when we view things from a man-centered, a human-centered perspective, what we do is when something bad happens in our life or we make a big mistake, sure, we react to that and we try to fix it as best we can because that's what humans do. But in God's instance, God doesn't react to things as if something caught him by surprise. He is ordaining life. He is allowing life to happen. And he already knows how he's going to leverage and use said suffering and said pain for your, for my ultimate good, and for his glory. You see, the people who say that God is not good, God cannot be good and allow suffering they say that because they don't have a big enough view of God. They see a God who is reactionary. They want to believe in an all-powerful God, but they don't believe He's powerful enough to actually ordain through His wisdom the circumstances that we experience here on earth and to leverage the circumstances that we experience here on earth. My God's big enough to do it. The God of the Bible is big enough, wise enough, and strong enough to do it. I want to show you one quick example here. If you look at Matthew 26, let's look specifically at the, the trial and death of Jesus Christ. Did the cross catch God by surprise? Did the cross catch Jesus by surprise? 
And pick up with me in verse 50 of Matthew 26. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. And then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Verse 53. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Jesus had an eternal perspective about his own death. Do you not think I could just take this all away right now and just say the word? But God has ordained this from the very beginning. I'm fulfilling what he's planned from the beginning. It must fulfill the scriptures. We see that even in the death of Jesus Christ, you see the Father working proactively and not reactively. So, if God can take the weightiest suffering and one of the most evil, heinous acts in all of human history, the crucifixion of Jesus and turn it into good, the salvation of multitudes who believe. We can trust Him to do the same in the midst of your suffering and my suffering as well. Just a couple more. Number six, we can take comfort that in our sufferings, we worship a God who has also endured suffering. We can take comfort that in our sufferings, we worship a God who has also endured suffering. You see, God is not sitting on His heavenly throne just looking down upon earth just trying to figure out how He can afflict us or trip us up on any given day. That is not the picture of our Heavenly Father. We don't worship a God who is so far from... Yes, He's so holy, He's so pure, He's so mighty, but He's not so far from us that He cannot identify with us. Because this is the whole reason Jesus came. Is that Jesus entered into our existence and took on earthly flesh and became one of us. And so Jesus was tempted like we're tempted. Jesus suffered the way we suffer. Jesus struggled the way you and I struggle. Isaiah 53 verse 3 calls Jesus this. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. And you want to see a glaring suffering and sickness that Jesus experienced? Look at his trial. Do you remember Matthew 26 that we just looked at? Well, when you read down in verse 59, this is what the Scriptures tell us. Now, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put Him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward, at least two. Jesus' trial wasn't even fair. The religious leaders who wanted to kill him actually went and sought out liars to come and testify against Jesus so that they would be justified and their hides and backs would be clean when they killed Jesus and they would have no one to blame them for it. Is that fair? It's evil. It's wicked. 
It's suffering. And our Lord, our Savior, our God endured that. And so Christian, hear me this morning. God the Father is telling you through his scriptures this morning, when you go through your moments of suffering and you experience the evil and the wickedness of mankind on this earth and you see the atrocities that happen, take comfort in this. It's as if his words are telling us this morning, I've suffered too. I've suffered too. I'm a God of suffering. And so you can trust me. You can come running to me. I know exactly how you feel. We can take comfort that in our sufferings, we worship a God who has also endured sufferings. Now let's finish. That's heavy. Let's finish on a more hopeful note. Let me give you seven and eight. Number seven, our sufferings are meant to propel us to hope in God. Our sufferings are meant to propel us to hope in God. Now see, I can't tell you all the why of every act of suffering and evil that happens on planet earth other than the fact that we live in a world that is completely broken by sin. Even the atmosphere itself is broken. Romans 8 says that the creation itself longs with birth pangs waiting and crying out to be redeemed. So even the, world, the system is broken. It, it, you look at the hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes, the earth itself is broken and is waiting to be redeemed. That, that is probably the ultimate why of what we could get at as human beings. But we can also get another hint at the why when we read scriptures like the ones we're about to look at. Our sufferings are meant to propel us to hope in God. Have you ever noticed when all of life is just a comfort and ease and peace in our lives? that those are the times when God is probably furthest from our minds. But let something bad happen. Let a trial come. What do we do? We're running to our knees, aren't we? Or we're crying out. It's not by accident that after September 11th, 2001, that houses of worship all over America were filled. Because see, it's suffering an evil that actually, whether we recognize it or not, actually draws us to the Father. It's meant to draw us to the Father. Now look with me at a couple of scriptures here. Let's start in Romans 5, and then we're going to go to the Old Testament. There are some other scriptures there in your notes that I would encourage you to look at in your own private study this week. In Romans 5, look at the process that Paul leads us through of thinking about things on this earth. He begins in verse 1 and says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's talking about salvation. Now, through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace into which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. There's our hope. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Come again. We rejoice in our sufferings. Why, Paul? Well, because knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. 
Do you see the pattern? We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces hope. Now I want you to think about this with me for a moment. Why is it that so many Christians do not experience and know this hope of Jesus Christ? Because there are so many people who are not willing to endure the suffering. They're not willing to go through the trials. But the scriptures say that suffering produces endurance. Going through the suffering, through the trial produces endurance. And endurance is what produces the hope. Because you've experienced that God gets you to the other side. But you can't get to the hope without going through the suffering. Our sufferings are meant to propel us to hope in God. It's a part of God's mathematical spiritual equation for the Christian life. When you look at Job, I, I, I've got to look here. Uh, we're we're going to be coming up close to time in just a moment, but I've got to go to Job, okay? We know Job as the guy who, who suffered, right? I don't have to tell the whole story. You, many of you know it well. You can read the account. Literally, God takes away everything he knows on planet Earth, and he keeps his faith really well until his friends show up. And his friends start giving him all the whys. And his friends actually lead him astray in his mind and his thinking. And he starts indicting God in ways that's not helpful. He starts shaking his faith, his fist toward God. Now, God finally speaks up to Job. And you know what, Job does, what God does to Job? God doesn't explain the why. God doesn't tell him what he was doing. God doesn't explain the intricacies of all, all the depths of his experiences. You know what God does? God gives him a picture of himself. Look with me very quickly at two sets of verses. First, Job 38. Look with me at Job 38, verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. And here comes the holy sarcasm. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurement? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? And he goes on and on and on. He doesn't stop. And he goes through chapter 38 and chapter 39 with these, this rant towards Job. And then we get to verse four, chapter 40, verse 1. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. And look at Job's response. Then, the, then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I'm a man of small account. What, what shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I've spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Job is ruined. Because he recognizes that all of the audacity that he thought he had towards God, when God showed up face to face and gave him just a little glimpse of who he was, Job was ruined. There's a restaurant that I frequent often and there's a lady there that I've become really close friends with and sweet, sweet lady. And 
she's constantly coming over and talking to me. She comes from a Catholic background, and she came up this week, and she's talking about the atrocities in Haiti, and there's a, there's a young child in her life who's been diagnosed with a really bad disease and has suffered, and she just really struggles with all the suffering. And she looked at me this week, and she said, I just want you to know, I tell you, I've been having conversations all week this week with him, and I tell you, I am just really angry with him. He and I are going to have some talking to do whenever I get before him one day. And I love this lady. She's so sweet. And I've walked alongside of her in the gospel and just continue to love on her as a grandmother. But you know, that was Job's response. See, we say those things, and it sounds right to say them until we come face to face with the Almighty. And then like Job, she, like all the rest of us, are ruined. We're speechless. Our circumstances, our sufferings are meant to propel us to hope in God, to get a bigger picture of Him. Lastly, number eight, our sufferings in this world prepare us for the hope of eternity or the glory of eternity. Our sufferings in this world prepare us for the glory of eternity. Or to say it a different way, our sufferings in this world prepare us for the glory of the next world. You see, we're too this world minded. All we see is this world. But Christians are people of another world as well. And the scriptures actually show us a link between our sufferings and endurance in this world and the glory that we experience in the next. You don't believe me? Look at it very quickly. 2 Corinthians 4, 17. Paul says this, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. In other words, all this suffering, these circumstances that we see here, they're just temporal. They're going to all be away one day. They're preparing you for the glory of the next. Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. You see, here's what's going to happen. When we stand before God one day and we as Christians are now in our eternal home in this new world, this new heavens and new earth that God is creating. Once we see how great and beautiful and perfect and majestic the glory of the next world is, we're going to start recognizing just how bad this one was. You see, people think that this world is basically good. And that people are basically good. They're just a few bad apples. But once we see the glory of the next, we're going to recognize just how broken this one was. And our sufferings and our pain, it's preparing us for that glory. Because when we get there, it's going to be like this huge veil has just been taken off. And just as a husband takes away that veil to see his beautiful, made-up bride and all of her beauty and radiance on his wedding day. And he sees her face for the first time. You and I are going to see true, perfect existence for the first time. And you're going to say, everything that I went through on planet Earth 
pales in comparison to the beauty of this. Ladies and gentlemen, I can't today give you all the whys and the reasons of your suffering or the sufferings of this world other than to say that we live in a world that's governed and broken by sin. But what I hope and pray is that what you see from the scriptures is that there is so much more going on under the surface and beyond glory than you or I experience. And so let us guard against indicting our Creator. You see, people say God cannot be good and also allow suffering. Or people could say it a different way. God, why can't you do something? Why can't you take all of this away? Why can't you just eradicate this? And this morning, I want to tell you there's good news. He has. He has done something. He sent his son Jesus to die on behalf of this broken world so that any human being who would repent of their sin and place faith in him, that he would make them a new creation and then promise them the truth and the hope that at the end of your life, you will get to move into a new heavens and a new earth where only righteousness and perfection exists. You see the perfect utopia that you're crying out for right now on planet earth? God is telling you, I've made it. And I've given you an invitation to it. But you have to go through my son. God, why don't you do something? He has. He has. For those who will enter by faith. My father, I pray to you today. I'm asking you for perspective Because I know that on any given day, I am so tempted to trust in my systems and to think that somehow this world is all there is. I judge my circumstances. I judge the world through my own lens. And Father, who am I to contend with you? Father, I pray today that you would train our hearts to think biblically rather than just through man-centered lenses. Father, I pray that you will teach us to think eternally and not just temporally. Father, propel us to hope in you. And Lord, if we're not in you today, Lord, I pray that those first steps would be taken today to say, I repent. I place faith in Jesus because my heart's longing to be in that new and perfect world that he has created. Father, I pray today that we would see Jesus as far more desirable and far more beautiful than any of the circumstances that we endure here on planet earth. And then, Father, I pray that we would rejoice in our sufferings, that we wouldn't go looking for it, but we would rejoice in our sufferings when they come, knowing that those sufferings are going to produce endurance, and that endurance by your grace will propel us to hope. Father, you are good. You're good in spite of the suffering. And so we run to your arms this morning. We run. We need you to hold us. We need you to kiss us on our foreheads. And we need you to remind us that hope is coming. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.